Hello and welcome to the New Testament in a Year podcast. Jay Smith here with Jimmy Doyle. We are in the book of Acts. We finished last time, which was two weeks ago. We apologize. We missed it last week. Uh, we just missed it. Um, I mean, I was out of town and didn't make better plans. And so we missed it. So we have a ton to catch up on. Uh, but we're going to give it our best shot. And so we're going to pick up at the story of Saul uh, right after chapter eight, at the very end of chapter eight, the very beginning of, excuse me, the very beginning of chapter eight, the end of chapter seven, uh, eight, one, Luke writes, which he didn't, he didn't, he didn't put chapter and verse in these, right? Right. No chapters and verses. Actually, I said verses, that was a ton of confidence. No, 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 there, the original text had no. None of it. We didn't actually have verses until really late. It's like fifteen hundred before verses really? are added to the yeah to the New Testament. Yeah. So in our modern post fifteen hundred Bible, yeah. eight verse one, and Saul approved of their killing him. So Luke begins to insert the story of Saul into the story of the early church right here at Acts chapter eight. And from that point, verse four, now those who were scattered went from place to place proclaiming the word. So this persecution breaks out in Jerusalem and everybody except for the apostles were scattered, scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria, which if you go back to Acts chapter one, verse eight, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so uh, I, I've actually at least come across this and Jimmy, you can either give this credence or tell me it's crazy is that this persecution kind of forced the church to go and do what they were called to do as far as proclaiming, like the diaspora or diaspora was one of these moments, kind of like the, uh, I, I can't remember. I wish I had a better reference on where this was related, but somebody at least compared it to the tower of Babel and how we have a tendency to kind of be one front and be united and stay in our comfort of being together in Jerusalem, which would have been for the early church. And the diaspora was one of these things, not that God willed it necessarily, but it God utilized it to propel the gospel forward into the region that was there around yeah. Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And so immediately after that, you see here um, the story of Simon practice magic in Samaria. And so the gospel breaks out in Samaria. And then also you have the moment where, uh, let me find it here so I don't mess up. So Philip encounters an Ethiopian eunuch here in chapter 8, verse 26 through, well, we'll just all the way through 35 or so. So let's pause and just start kind of talking about how the church is starting to break out in some of these main scenes. Like you look at the story of Simon, you look at the story of the eunuch. Like when you look at those stories, uh, what as a reader, when we first encounter these, how should we pull um, some of the story of the early church out in our own context or for that context? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that what you uh, alluded to or talked about with the Tower of Babel, you know, if you believe that scripture is inspired, then you believe that this is some kind of overall narrative that God is revealing himself over time and revealing God's plan for humanity. And so you see this thing in the book of Genesis at the creation of humanity, uh, Jesus is, uh, or God is, is very clearly saying to human beings, I, I want you to spread out and fill the earth, right? Like multiply, be my representatives out in the world. And then you get to this Tower of Babel thing where instead of filling out and spreading across the world, they're like consolidating. Let's build a, let's build a city and build a place that will give us a name for ourselves and a tower that will reach to he the heavens. 
and they start gathering together and not doing this kind of spreading out representation of God as God's image in the world. And then God scatters them. And I think that this, this, there's a lot of things in the book of Acts that it feels like the, the, the reversal of the Tower of Babel, right? So the Tower of Babel, uh, in that scattering, the languages are confused. And in the book of Acts, uh, they're able to speak all the different languages and still be united. Like there's a kind of a, a correction. But the other thing is Jesus has told them in Acts chapter 1 that they're to be witnesses, his witnesses, in Jerusalem and in Judea, which is the, the region around Jerusalem is Judea. And Samaria is the region to the north. And it includes people who are Samaritans who were kind of outcasts. And then to the ends of the earth, uh, to, to the whole world. So there's this thing that God wants this to spread to the whole world. And we're going to see in, in the book of Romans that God's promise of land to Abraham, Paul interprets as God's promise to the whole world. So, uh, but apparently the church wasn't doing it. Like they were in Jerusalem. Uh, you know, Jay and I, we talked two weeks ago and I told Jay that, uh, I don't know if you remember, I told you that um, I kind of believe that the apostles dropped the ball. Mm-hmm. Jesus comes and he says, uh, I did not come uh, to be served, but to serve. And that word is diakonos. I did not come uh, to be waited upon like a waiter who waits tables, but I, I came to be like a waiter of tables. And he tells his disciples, you should do the same thing. Well, when it comes down to the Hellenistic widows who are not being taken care of, the apostles kind of say, well, that's not our job. We're going to focus on the service of the word. And uh, we're going to find people to do this job, diakonos of waiting tables and they find these guys. And then the next stories are about how those guys are actually doing what the apostles were supposed to do. Uh, Stephen is proclaiming in Jerusalem and he gets stoned and he gets martyred. But Philip goes and he shares the good news to an Ethiopian eunuch and to Samaritans. And he's taking the gospel to these regions that Jesus said to take the gospel to, but it, it may have taken this persecution to get them out of their comfort zone of staying where they were in Jerusalem to go and be that word diaspora is like dispersion, the dispersion, the spreading of the seed out to go out into these other groups of people. And, you know, here in Acts eight, we see that and that's real quick. Like you see this, it's easy to read over that, but there would have been an incredible amount of tension. But even when this dispersion is taking place, what we see is, is those guys that were picked to take care of these widows so that the apostles didn't have to, are actually the ones that are taking the gospel other places. Philip shares with the Ethiopian eunuch, um, and then he goes and he's with the Samaritans. And what's interesting is in this dispersion where it says that all these Christians are being spread out everywhere, the apostles remain in Jerusalem, and they're the ones that were supposed to be going. Mm. And it, it takes this experience in Samaria, when the apostles finally hear about it, that they come up to kind of check and see what's going on. Um, and then they go back to Jerusalem, and then Peter starts going out, and he has this vision uh, in Joppa uh, to go, you know, into the house of Cornelius. And so finally you see this kind of thing where the Holy Spirit is getting the apostles to move in that direction of taking the, the gospel elsewhere. Not that they weren't. I mean, obviously we have these great stories about they're doing incredible things, and the Holy Spirit's working through them. But I think then as today, we kind of like to gather together rather than be spread out and take um, the good news places. And I think there's this tension of balance that we have to have, that the church uh, needs to be this gathered and scattered community. Mm. Uh, there's a great book called Gathered and Scattered, and I forget who the author is. It talks about that tension uh, that we have. Uh, and so, we see it here. 
Yeah. And, and the, the whole story of Philip and the eunuch especially is just a, a really, um, I don't know. It's cool. It's a, it's a really neat story. The, and it, it, if you, if you follow it, it's in at the end of chapter eight, as we mentioned, uh, so he got up. Now there's a youth Ethiopian eunuch. This is verse 27, a court official of, of the Candace queen of the Ethiopians in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home seated in his chariot when he was reading the prophet Isaiah and the spirit told Philip to go over to his chariot and join it. So he goes over and he hears him reading about Jesus, like a sheep who was led to the slaughter, like a lamb silent before a shearer, So his mouth did not open. And the eunuch asks Philip, about whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this about? Is it himself or someone else? And then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both, both of them, Philip the eunuch, went down to the water, and Philip baptized them. And then verse 39 says, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. And then Philip was sent to somewhere else, Azotus, or Azotus which is an old Philippine, uh, Philistine uh, town. So when I read that, so number one is, is I think one of the first things that sticks out to me, and, and maybe you can speak a little, a little bit to this, is, is the connection of Ethiopia and like he was in Jerusalem worshiping. Is there a long history between the country or the people of Ethiopia and like, would he have been Jewish? Would he have just been or a a God fearing Ethiopian? Is that kind of what he would have been at that point? Yeah. Um, He most likely, well, I think almost everybody would agree that he is not Jewish. And the reason is, is because he's a eunuch. Oh, yeah. And uh, eunuchs were people who either by injury or by birth uh, or by surgical procedure have had their private parts uh, removed or mutilated. And it was a common thing in the ancient world for uh, men to be made into eunuchs so that they would basically could be trusted to guard women in high standing, right? So if you were a king and you had a queen or a harem and you wanted somebody to guard those women, um, you would have the people who guard, the men who guard them would almost always be eunuchs, right? Um, And in Ethiopia, um, what we would call Ethiopia, that region, um, they actually were a matriarchal society. So they had a queen um, whose title was uh, Kandike, which is we have Candace here. So that's not a name, that's a title. Mm. Um, and uh, this eunuch served her and he was probably somebody who was also, because it would be important for the, the queen to, so there's no risk of sexual issues between yeah. these women and the men who were guarding them. So because he's a eunuch, uh, he would, even if he converted to Judaism, he would not be able to be a part of like temple worship and those types of things. And uh, if, depending on what kind of eunuch he was, he probably couldn't be circumcised. So those are all, you know, pretty uh, body part oriented conversations, which is a part of the New Testament. This whole issue of circumcision is going to happen. So most likely he is a, uh, what would be called in the book of Acts. and, And we think that these are kind of titles like a God fearer. 
which means a Gentile who worships the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, but has not converted fully to uh, Judaism. In other words, uh, is a worshiper of God, but the title for that, it gets used so often in the, in the, in the New Testament and elsewhere that it often refers to Gentiles who have not uh, converted but are very favorable. So this happens all over, and we're going to see this for the rest of the book of Acts. Paul is going to go to synagogues. He'll connect on some uh, small level with some Jewish people in that synagogue, but for the most part, who he connects with are these Gentiles who are who really like the God of the Old Testament, but for whatever reason, haven't decided or can't become Jewish. Uh, and so they're kind of on the outer ring, even though they may play important roles in the synagogues. And when Paul comes in, they find a way that they can be fully a part of the people of God through Jesus uh, without having to go through the conversion process to Judaism. Yeah, which actually happens in one of the texts that we've read in the last few weeks in, in the Council yeah. of Jerusalem in chapter 15. Yeah, this so, is a big deal. Not to skip. But I'll, before we'll come, we get, but before, yeah, before we leave this eunuch thing, though, I want to, this is really cool. So something that's not cool and then something that is cool. So in the Old Testament, there are people who are excluded from being priests. There are people who are excluded from worship in the, in the temple. And Gentiles can't go into the temple. There's actually an inscription found from the time of Jesus. You know, hey, Gentiles, you can't enter the core area except for on payment. You enter this area, you will die. We will kill you. Um, so if this guy was a Gentile, number one, he couldn't go in and worship. The other thing is, even for Jewish people who were eunuchs, either by birth or injury or intent, uh, they could not worship in the temple. Okay, that's in the Torah. It's in the, the Old Testament law, you know, Exodus through Deuteronomy. So, um, but in, in the book of Isaiah, there's these prophecies about this messianic time that would come. And um, so God says through Isaiah, the God who gave this law to exclude, by the way, says through Isaiah, a new time is coming. He says, let not the foreigner, this is in Isaiah 56, which is, I think, an important thing too. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh, to the Lord, say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says Yahweh to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. Uh, so these people can't have sons and daughters. Mm. I'm going to give you a pillar in my temple with your name inscribed on it, um, better than a name. I will give them an everlasting name and it will not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh, to minister to him, to serve him, to love the name of Yahweh and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, they get to come in and they get to be a part. Okay. So this is Isaiah 56, which is three chapters later than the passage that this Ethiopian eunuch is reading yeah. And having explained to him about the suffering servant, right? This suffering servant thing kind of introduces this in Isaiah, this messianic picture where everything's going to change. And so I'm, I am almost, I mean, it's not in the scripture. Reading, right? Yeah. I mean, what is it like for a eunuch who gets to that point? He finds out about Jesus who suffers for him. And you get to this point where you're not excluded from this thing. Mm. You're, you're a part of this thing. So, That's so good. Um, it's a pretty incredible, I, I, it's an incredible story. And so right before we see all these Gentiles begin to come in, this is the introductory, the, the eunuch 
is brought in, and then the Gentiles are brought in. It is a fulfillment of Isaiah 56 that is happening here in the life of the early church. And so what you're seeing here in the book of Acts is this gospel is just broadening in its inclusion. Yeah. And it comes to a head in, in chapter 15, which we'll get to here in just a minute. But like as a key conduit of that gospel exploding into the Gentile world is chapter nine, uh, the conversion of Saul. Saul of Tarsus, which Tarsus would have been in. Tarsus is in, like if you look at a map and you see where the Middle East like uh, starts cutting across and going west, um, that little corner in the Mediterranean, that's where Tarsus is. So it's in southern, it'd be in southern Turkey, right? Yeah. And so, because, and I, the only reason I mentioned that as far as geography is for me, it helps number one to think about that, but you're going to hear a lot of stuff taking place in the book of Acts that's happening in North of Jerusalem or North of Israel and Syria and what would be modern Syria, Turkey, Syria, Turkey, and Greece. Yep. And and we're headed, we're headed all the way to Rome at some point. So, and uh, so what happens is he's on the way and, and he has gotten orders from the high priest to persecute and follow and track down Christians. And on his way, he is blinded and Jesus calls him out and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And uh, Saul says, who are you? Who is this? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, and then there's this guy named Ananias who is just sitting at home and has this encounter and is told to go to the man that is killing many of his friends or at least, uh, you know, persecuting or trying to kill many of his friends. And he says, listen, get up and go to the street called straight. We're in verse 11 of chapter nine. And at the house of Judas, look for a man named of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying and he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so they might regain his sight. But he responds, Lord, I've heard about or heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to the saints in Jerusalem. And here he has an authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, it's, uh, I love the way that the Lord responds because it's like, don't worry, I got this, but it's not really just that for he's an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles and Kings and before the people of Israel. Okay, great. And then verse 16, he says, I myself will show him how much he must suffer for my, for the sake of my name. Incredible. Uh, I don't know. I thought it was unbelievable. So Ananias went into the house, laid his hands on Saul and said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. His sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Okay. Lots of stuff going on. We're going to talk about Paul a lot or Saul becoming Paul uh, or using the name Paul as part of our thing. But I do think there are some points that, that are worth stopping. And one of them, and I just want to kind of get your opinion on this, is verse 18 here at the end. Um, and I think Vicki Taylor is the one that asked this question about there's these all of these different kind of experiences for converts in the book of Acts where some people are baptized, their whole families are baptized. Uh, Some are baptized and then they get the Holy spirit by the laying on of hands invoked upon them. Some of them had the Holy spirit and then get baptized. And so like when you look at this, 
when you think about baptism and, and we're, and I come from a Methodist, I don't come from, but I am a Methodist in, in Wesleyan and kind of my understanding. So we still uh, do infant baptism, which any good Wesleyan, when they look at baptism, a lot of what they would pull out of that does come from the book of Acts when whole households were baptized as kind of the setting apart for this new creation of God's people. Um, but that's not what happens with Paul. Paul is baptized. Um, for me, is that that feels more like a John the Baptist sinner's repentant baptism, kind of that washing off the old and coming up new. You feel like that's a fair way to to frame the reason Paul was baptized on the other side of this? Yeah, I mean, especially when you think about Luke as a, acts as a continuation of Luke, and baptism has been this sign of regeneration, repentance, and change from the from the very preaching of John the Baptist until now. And they're adapting a, uh, you know, to convert to Judaism, you uh, have to be baptized. So that's one thing, you have to have a mikvah. <clears throat> and but the other thing is to be ritually pure, you have to be baptized. And so baptism was taking place a lot in Jewish culture. But now we have this baptism that is clearly a entrance into the community of, of believers uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls community practice this same kind of thing, but this is uh, what is uh, fascinating about the New Covenant experience, the Book of Acts experience, is that it is accompanied most often by this, not just baptism with water, but this baptism of the Holy Spirit. There is this revelatory, spiritual, uh, in, in Greek terms, an apocalyptic experience that's happening for these beliefs, a revelatory experience. And uh, that's happening for not just Paul, but for other people. And I think it's, it's transformative. You know, we use the word uh, uh, conversion. Um, I think transformation is a word that I would prefer because I think if Paul were sitting here with us right now, if I said, Paul, did you change from one religion to another? Yeah. Paul would be like, nope. I did not change from one religion to another. I followed Jesus, the Messiah of the tribe of Judah. And what happened for me is clarification. I had zeal without knowledge. And now I have this revelatory knowledge. I think for Paul, it's a fulfillment of all the things that, that he, he thinks that, you know, being uh, someone who follows the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob would be experiencing. I don't, I think we think in terms of these religious terms, Jewish, not Jewish, Judaism versus Christianity. And Judaism versus Christianity is certainly not a category that Paul had. And I think the way that Paul describes this experience is almost the way Jeremiah is described, where Paul says, you know, I was born too late, but I had this experience where God had set me aside even from my birth. Like God knew what was going to happen, and I finally came into it, that type of thing. Uh, but there's definitely a change. I mean, this is incredible. The, the kind of change that we're going to see in Paul is, and this is what's great, this is pretty rare in history, out, just biblical, non-biblical. It's pretty rare to have a historical account of someone's life and then personal letters from that person describing their own experiences. And there are tensions. Sometimes Acts doesn't line up with some of the things that Paul describes about himself in Paul's letters, like, timelines and things, just like you would expect with real memories. Uh, but we have this thing where we know that Paul was changed. He was one way. He was doing certain things. He admits to it in his own letters, and it was a significant change in his life. He goes from being a persecutor who's about 
even killing people in the name of what he believed to loving those that he would have thought would have been outside of all that. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. And you see it a little bit here in verse 19 and 20. So after this happens, the scales fall from, he regains his strength for several days here. It says at the end of 19, he was with the disciples in Damascus. Now, unless I'm totally mistaken is these aren't, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, which would have been the disciples when you start thinking. But for several days, Paul just hung out with the Christians that were in Damascus. Is basically yeah. what we would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, some, that's, that's a good, good point. Some clarity on some terms in the book of Acts. Uh, the 12, as we think of them, are almost always called either the 12 or the 11, right? So uh, the apostles... Uh, kind of mixes because what becomes clear is, uh, is Barnabas is going to be called an apostle later. Like those who are sent out with the message of Jesus are given the title apostle even after Jesus. So there are apostles in the book of Acts and in the New Testament who are not part of the 12. So you have the 12 who are the inner core, 11 after Judas, even though they replace him with Mattathias. Um, and then you have just disciples in general. Anybody who was a uh, apprentice of Jesus, a student of Jesus, a follower of Jesus is called a disciple. Uh, so those are important terms. And it, as long as we're on that, like names. Yeah, you're so, good. So uh, Paul and Saul. Uh, Paul, uh, Saul was his Hebrew name. It would have been Shaul, Shaul. And all of these guys have Hebrew and Greek names. Okay. Cephas. Yeah, yeah. So either Hebrew and Greek or Hebrew and Latin, right? So uh, Simon Peter is sometimes called Shimon Kepha, which is a name that's given to him, we know from the Gospels. Jesus gives him the, the, the title, the nickname Kepha, which means little rock or rocky. Um, and in Greek, that's Petros, right? So that becomes Peter. So Peter's the Greek translation of the Aramaic name Kepha, right? So there's no place. Sometimes I think we have this idea that Paul had this conversion experience. He was Saul and he became Paul after he was converted. Uh, almost, I think only once in the book of Acts does Jesus ever, you know, the spirit of Jesus, does Jesus ever refer in a vision to Paul as Paul? Usually he refers to him as Shaul, Saul. So there's no name change given with this conversion experience. That's not part of it. The reality is, is Saul, Shaul, began going to Greek communities. And when he was in Greek communities, he used his Greek name, right? I have a friend whose name is Ahmed. Ahmed. Ahmed is hard to say for Americans. We go, so he's Ahmed. 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 So no, well, sometimes it's Ahmad. But my friend actually goes by Alex. Yeah because it's just easier to, for Americans to say that name, right? So Ahmed becomes Alex. And that happens a lot, right? So uh, that yeah, happens even in that, image, in that yeah. culture. So it's just, it's, when you have multilinguistic cultures, it's easier sometimes for people to pick up names. So Jose becomes Joe, right? That's yeah. Awesome. So it's not some sort of take up your new name. No, no, there's no, there's nothing like that described yeah. for, for Paul, Saul. In Which the you know, Testament. there's, yeah. That, that is a common theme in a lot of people's understanding of the transformation of Paul and, yeah. and Peter and everybody where it's take, they take up this new name, but it's just really the way it was defined in the c culture that they yeah. were in. 
What's interesting is Paul is, we probably really imagine things about Paul more than we do Jesus as far as Western Christian culture. Paul really has become in some ways the center for us of, our, of a lot I of think what especially we understand about. for more of that reformed evangelical. Oh, for sure. Uh, so we've seen all these images kind of like we get the birth of, we, have, we imagine the birth of Jesus in a particular way because of artwork. Uh, mm. We imagine the uh, road to Damascus experience for Paul a lot of ways because of artwork. So if you, if you ask people to describe it, a lot of people are gonna be like, yeah, he was on his horse. He got thrown down. He's on the ground. He's looking up at this light because that's the way most artistic representations of that mm-hmm. experience are. Whereas the actual biblical story, there's no mention of any horse. He does see a light. He does hear a voice. What's interesting later in Acts is uh, this experience is going to be described by Paul two more times. And all three of our versions of the story in Acts are a little different. And we can talk about that when we come to those. Uh, so did Paul have an experience on his own and no one else around him had it, saw it or heard it or, or that is it? That becomes a question. What did other people experience when they're around Saul, Paul, when he has this experience? In the book of Galatians, Paul says, uh, a lot of English translations, and, uh, you know, God was pleased to reveal Christ to me. But in Paul, he says, in Galatians, he says, Christ was revealed in me, in the Greek, which I think is pretty incredible. Like, he has this experience, and it's deep. He's not outside of it. He goes to Damascus. He fasts for three days, food and water. And God tells Ananias, hey, I'm going to show Paul how much Saul, how much he has to suffer for my name, which is also going to be a theme in every one of Paul's letters. This idea that following Jesus mm. cannot be separated. If you're going to be like Jesus, it cannot be separated from suffering. Yeah. And uh, to, live as, to yeah. live as Christ and to die as God, yeah. right? Like who no would have lived? I, such live. A, yeah. Alan Hirsch said it at New Room last year. He says, somebody told him the image of Paul is like this wounded fox dragging his body across the entire known known world at the time. Like he just is that guy, man. He just, he gets beaten up. Oh man. And that's what you see. Like we're, you know, five chapters into his story and he's already been beaten with rods stoned, you know, like he just endures until the end, you know, we also have this picture of Paul and unless he's just faking it. Right. And apparently he was a good speaker because they, some people want to worship him as like, you know, Hermes, but, uh, you know, Paul says in second Corinthians, man, I was with you in weakness, fear and trembling. I was with you. Like we have this picture of Paul, Paul walks into a room and he has everybody's attention and he's this dynamic speaker. And that's not, that's not the way he's described. He describes no. himself and it's not the way he's really described in some of the earliest church materials where he's kind of viewed as like this, really like this old beaten down bald headed guy with bad eyes, you know, <laughs> like, uh, yeah. well, and he even says it in, uh, I should know the reference, but when he talks about his, the thorn in his flesh, right? Yeah. Like, you know, there's been tons of speculation on what that could be, but it could be as simple as he had really bad gout or he had, yeah. you know, like there's whatever Something's it is. Something's not and right. So, and Jesus isn't yeah. fixing it. I know. Jesus says, no, that's going to make you even, that makes my message even better for you to have Which this is, weakness. For me, just to pause kind of editorializing so much, like I think, I think one of the things that has created a really hard reality for Christians today is this, any experience of suffering, you know, which I know is going to feel really close to home now uh, in the middle of this coronavirus stuff, but 
any experience of suffering for a lot of Christians today is, or even non-Christians is the proof of the absence of God, right? Like, well, where's God in the midst of all of this? And it's like the early church had such a different, and I was even answering questions for a friend of ours and, and, you know, like, well, where are you? Where are you seeing like this? If you, we really believe that God is still active today, like he was in the book of Acts and like, why are we seeing all of these, you know, miracles? And, you know, there's, I think those questions are valid and I don't ever detract from those, but I think sometimes number one is, is we don't, uh, we, we see any sort of hurt as the absolute failure or lack of God's presence in our life, right? Like any sort of loss or suffering. And that was just so contrary to the way the early church functioned. Like, yeah, you saw Peter and them heal, but you also saw them slaughtered and yeah. you saw them endure incredible suffering. And then they didn't, they didn't go back and throw their hands up in frustration to God, which I think just to give permission is a normal response. Like there's nothing wrong with, with you being frustrated because you don't see God active in this exact specific physical moment that you need God to be active in. But a lot of times they would go back, especially early, they would go back and they would rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer um, because of how Christ suffered, right? If there's any example of how this life can treat you and how unfair it can be, the person of Christ, like he literally endured the worst the world could throw at him. Yeah. You know, it's not the absence of suffering, you know, it's an easy way to say this, but it's like, it's the presence of God in the midst of that. Like Paul dealt with everything, shipwrecked, beaten, 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 jailed, released, beaten. And then finally, you know, tradition would say he was executed. Uh, I actually have heard some speculation that, that his story just continued. Uh, N.T. Wright even kind of give a didn't give credence to it, but he just kind of talked a little bit. It's like you know, there are some traditions that say that Paul actually made his way into Spain, and that was where he was headed. And yeah. Yeah. but you know, most people would assume he was he was executed in in Rome during. Certainly, if he was alive, though, he was about the business oh, of yeah. sharing Jesus and persecution, hardship. You know, he says in Philippians four, we quote the second part of this. You know, I can do all things through Christ. But what Paul says is. I know what it's like to be clothed, have plenty of clothes and to be naked, not to have enough clothes to wear. And I know what it's like <laughs> to be starving, to be, to be full, to be starving and to be full. But you know what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that whole passage going from actually starting in Philippians two, three and four. Again, Jesus says to Ananias, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. Yeah. And Paul leans in. He says, I want to know the power in Philippians three. He says, I want to know the power of the resurrection and to have fellowship and Jesus sufferings like he, whatever it is to be about Jesus, if it's the kind of suffering that Jesus would experience in this world, I want to enter into that, you know, like, um, and Paul, he even says this, he says, whatever was lacking in the sacrifice Mm -hmm. for Jesus of Jesus, I made up in my own suffering, which is a big theological Christological (laughs) issue that we don't want to get into right now. But I'm just saying that this idea of suffering that it being, Part of the life of a disciple following Jesus, suffering should not surprise us. It should not daunt us. And it, and it really, in some level, without being masochistic, we're not looking for suffering. But suffering for faithfulness to Jesus and the things that God wants should not surprise us. And we should, it should affirm, in some ways, the truth of what we're doing. 
in a world that's contrary to the things of Jesus. It's okay. great, man. So let's skip up so we can uh, try to, you know, we're dealing with a lot of big tickets uh, items on this. So we are in chapter 10 uh, moving through Paul, which we, like I said, we'll deal with Paul a lot over the next uh, months because we're going to read a lot of his words, epistles, teaching. So we'll reflect a lot on him. Uh, chapter 10 is this story of Cornelius. I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase it. Cornelius gets an experience and says, I mean, verse four, he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And then your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God, uh, which is incredible. But so Peter has an experience. The Lord rolls out this large sheet and all of these animals. And he tells Peter, take and eat, enjoy. Peter says, I, that's, I, I've never done that. Like I've kept my, and all of my failures, God, the one I have not failed in is eating the things that I'm not supposed to eat. And God tells him in this vision, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean, which is a game changer. And so then he's told to go to Cornelius's house. Cornelius is a Gentile. He goes to Cornelius's and the gospel has come to Gentiles through Peter in that moment. Uh, his whole family's baptized and, and it creates a stir. Like this is a conflict that doesn't end here. Uh, it's a conflict that Paul and Peter get into again, because it's this uh, we've talked about it and, and it, you know, I know it does make people uncomfortable, but you can't avoid it in the new Testament is the right of circumcision uh, what that means for Christians who are, I just want to pause and go back to what you said, Jimmy is for the entire early church. Um, it was the transformation. It was not a conversion experience in the way that we would understand it. They all saw and preached Jesus. I mean, think about Stephen's. We, we talked about it last time we were together. Stephen's entire testimony, his witness as he's about to die, is the unity of the story of God, Adam, Abraham, you know, Moses, yeah, yeah. David. It's one, it's one overarching story. And so Paul, I mean, Peter, all of them would have seen this as the continuation of the, of the Yahweh story, right? Yeah. And so when you do have this thing where these non-Jews are coming to know Christ as the fulfillment of the Messianic promise of the Old Testament, the tension and conflict comes into, um, all right, so they have to become Jewish before they can truly know Jesus. And uh, pretty emphatically in chapter 10, and then again, when we get to 15, the answer is it becomes no, but it's not easy. It comes with a lot of conflict and there's conflict that continues. And so just try, I'm, I'm bunching a ton up. There's so much we're missing in the midst of that, but just for, for the sake of trying to be brief-ish, uh, what are some of the ways that you, you would expand that for us, Jimmy? I don't know if I can expand that. I, I think what's difficult is that we... Um, I think because of Christianity, even, even among those who are not Christians, in some ways this idea of classification is, certainly in Western culture, it's far less than it was in the, in the first century, these separations between people. We still have that, but it was different. Like this, I, what I can't capture is the idea of these non-Jewish people become fully a part of the people of God and the movement of God it was so such a foreign notion. Uh, and this transformation is changing everything. The boundaries of who God's people are, are changing because of this transformation of Jesus. 
Uh, and again, like you said, it's not the, it's not the adoption of one religion versus another. Like we're talking about these, I, I don't think it made sense to people in some ways. I just think they knew it was real. Like, okay, man, I, my life is different now. What does that mean in terms of my relation to paganism? If I'm a Gentile, what does that mean in terms of my relation to temple worship? If I'm Jewish, like, and I think it was transformative of all of those things. And at this point, the kind of the boundary markers would have been hard to know. Um, I also think, you know, so Acts 10, Peter's being told to go share, you know, he isn't even really being told what he's going to do. Just go with these three guys. So one element of this that's going to pop up and has been popping up already is in the early church, how often the spirit is speaking and they're hearing this voice Mm. that sends them to the other um, that guides them in their decision-making and going to Cornelius. Cornelius was apparently very, he's probably a Syrian. He could have been Roman. He was a part of a, a cohort called the Italian cohort. He may have been retired. He's in Caesarea, which was the, the chief town where the Romans were located in the Holy land. Uh, he, it says his household, but Roman centurions were forbidden from marrying. Although a lot of them kind of took on women on the side and had mm-hmm. children and so when they retired, they often stayed where they served because sometimes they had family. So he may have had, may have had a Jewish wife or Jewish children. Who knows what, how this all went together. But at some level, Cornelius was a part of the occupying force, even though he was well-liked as being a God-fearer. And the gospel's going to these guys. It's, we forget the story of Jesus where people wanted to rise up and knock and throw the Romans out. And now here in Acts 10, the gospel is going and transforming this Roman soldier and his whole household. And uh, I don't know. I'm trying to find terms for it. This, this transformation makes you love even those who you would not have engaged in any way, even if they were just because they were outside your ethnic class, but even going to those who maybe have been looked at as enemies at some point. Uh, I don't know. It's an incredible thing. I don't really have a context for it or to yeah, make it any hard. better it's than you've talked about. Because I think for me, as I go to the racial uh, divide between, you know, white and black, and I, it's hard to make that, that, that connection feels right in some ways in the sense of understanding divide by that, but it's, it doesn't feel like it really captures the fullness of the difference in Gentile and Jew and you know, not even to mention the Roman aspect of that to mention Cornelius. Like, is that a, is that a way to connect or does it feel like it just doesn't, it doesn't capture it enough? Yeah. I just don't know if we have it. I mean, I think it does. I mean, anything that can connect to it, I think that certainly does connect to it, but um, I don't know what, you know, for me, I go to the Israeli Palestinian thing. Cause that's, that's the place where I've seen this type of tension take place on a religious socioeconomic level. What does it look like to cross all those lines? Because you believe those lines are being erased. Yeah. Uh, that it's more that your own, because the question for a Jewish person in this is if, if all this can be, if all the things that were promised to us can also be promised to Gentiles who don't have to keep the Torah to receive all these promises, then what does that mean about our own identity? Because our identity has been centered on keeping all these things. Uh, and, and I think we, as we read this as 
uh, American Christians, what we're not realizing is, is this is a tension with the Scripture that's taking place. This call of the Holy Spirit is putting interpret long-held interpretations of Scripture uh, on the on the line. Uh, when Peter has this experience of these clean or unclean animals coming down in this vision, I mean, the Torah says, don't eat these unclean animals. Now, I'm not actually sure the vision is telling Peter to eat unclean animals. I think it's making a distinction. Don't call things unclean that I didn't call unclean. Right. And it happens three times, and then three Gentiles show up at the door. Like, I didn't, I mean, I didn't call these guys unclean. But by the time you get to Peter, the interpretation of Scripture was that some Gentiles are unclean, and because Gentiles do unclean things, they worship idols, they eat pigs, they uh, might eat meat with blood in it, they don't ritually cleanse themselves, and because God says he won't come to dwell with us if we're unclean, we don't go into the household of Gentiles because we don't want to be made unclean and be an excuse for God not to come and be in our midst. Uh, the other element was that these unclean things had the idea of maybe spiritual, like a demon could come into you through these things. So you just don't do, you don't go into those places. But we can look back and go, well, that was their tradition. That's not in scripture. But for them, that was the way they viewed scripture. They thought that those beliefs, those understandings of not going into a Gentile's house, it would be easy for them to say, well, the scripture tells us not to be unclean. So we shouldn't go into a Gentile's house. It's that simple. Um, so setting those things aside uh, would be really difficult. And we're going to see in Acts 15 that they set aside the entire Torah. They set aside all of the commandments so that Gentiles can come in. I mean, there's no mention of like, oh, well, they got to make sure they keep the Ten Commandments. They don't say that. They say, hey, we're going to give them four things. No sexual immorality, no uh, idolatry, no need of strangled animals, and abstain from blood, either blood and, and animals that they're eating or blood is in murder. Uh, do those four things. And then Paul tells us later that they also said, remember the poor. So five things for the Gentiles. And you do those things, you get to fully be a part of who we are. Uh, because it seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit. And we read that, we're like, oh, thank you, God, for your grace. But for those first century Jewish Christians, I mean, to set aside the Torah is all of Jewish identity in terms of practice and religion is centered on the Torah. So to set aside the commands is, I can't think of a bigger thing that they would set aside. <laughs> it really is for uh, us. We just like read it and move on to the next thing. And for anybody that was reading it through a Jewish lens, it would be like, um, what? Yeah. Yeah. This is for, for Jewish people. This is when Christianity ceases to be Jewish. Right? They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to keep the commandments. They're Gentiles at this point. Like anybody who practices that way of life. Now, I want to point out that Paul, as far as we know from the book of Acts, uh, Paul never ceased to stop observing the Torah. Um, well, and yeah, and, and we'll get to this when, when we do is, is yeah. when he goes in that whole permissible, uh, beneficial argument. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, yeah, I, I mean, I have license to do whatever because of the grace of God, but it's not, if it's not beneficial, then I choose not to do it. Yeah. You know, and so it's, and, and, he, and it, he, he plays uh, ignorant too, right? In the sense he says, hey, you know what? Just don't ask. <laughs> when they put food in front of you, don't ask whether it's clean or unclean. Just that way you don't know, right? Yeah. Like, um, Paul, Paul has such a great way of, 
balancing the grace and truth side of it, if that makes sense. Like we use that language a lot and it kind of gets diluted, but he, he understood the grace of God in such tremendous fashion, but also understood, I mean, and that's that Jewish aspect of him, what it meant to, to, to die, to give your life away, to live in a way that was um, pursuing of holiness, you know, in the sense that we would kind of understand that. And so, um, kind of towards, we, we just briefly touched on the council of Jerusalem. Uh, but you've got the gist of, of what is taking place there. And it's, it's the culmination of all of this that's happening in that moment. But I did just want to emphasize, this is where the story starts to really becomes Paul's story. Um, and one of the things I sent a, a text to Jimmy the other day is, is you also start to see that Luke begins to include himself in the story yeah. when the pronouns go from, you know, they, and, and when he's they, it's, Here's kind of the main characters. There's a lot of them, but Paul, Silas, Barnabas, which I, I feel immensely guilty that we've skipped over how incredible Barnabas is. You don't uh, get Paul without Barnabas. You don't. Yeah. You don't get. Yeah, exactly. And, and Barnabas is just the son of encouragement. What's it? Encouragement. Yeah, son of encouragement. Yeah, son of yeah. encouragement. And then uh, so Silas, Paul, Barnabas, uh, and then you have John Mark. Yeah, or, sorry, Barnabas yeah, is cousin. So. Uh, later, so just real quick, we'll just do this. Yeah, go. So, yeah, you're good. Uh, Paul and Barnabas and Mark are sent by the church in Antioch. Antioch's in modern day Syria, um, southern Turkey, and um, they're sent out as apostles to go share the good news of Jesus to Gentiles. They primarily go to synagogues first, but since the synagogues don't really receive the message and the Gentiles do, it becomes a, a Gentile. And, and our title for this is Missionary Journey. Uh, but it's just an, it's an apostolic trip to share the gospel. Early on in that trip, you got to figure these trips were really hard. They're walking long distances, crossing mountain ranges, seas, and all kinds of risks to their life. Early on in that trip, uh, Mark bails out, kind of disappears from the trip. Uh, and then Paul and Barnabas go around and, and share the gospel. And when they come back, there's this controversy because all these Gentiles have received the gospel, they've been baptized with water and they've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And now the church has a, has a problem because there's probably as many or more Gentile believers at this point than there are Jewish believers. And the whole dynamic is changing. And then in Acts 15, they have to have this conversation, which we call the, the church, the first church council. It wasn't like a church council. It was like, let's, let's have a meeting and figure out yeah, what right, we're going to yeah. do here. And surprisingly, they, they do this thing where we, that we've been talking about. All the Gentiles, if they're believers in Jesus, we don't want to get in their way. They don't have to keep the commandments. We're going to write a letter for you so that you can go verify that the church in Jerusalem, the people who really knew Jesus, that's, that's what we believe. So then they get ready to go on this second missionary journey to revisit the places that they went to share this, this letter with them. And the Jerusalem church sends some guys to go with them, Silas being one of those guys. So these Jewish guys are going to go around to these Gentiles and, and affirm what the Jewish church in Jerusalem who knew Jesus said. And then they get ready to go on this second trip and Paul and Barnabas get crossways because Barnabas wants to take his cousin, John Mark. Let's take him again because he's the son of encouragement, right? He's like this guy that's going to, he had no hesitation going and getting Paul when, when everybody doubted Paul. Yeah. Barnabas is not doubting John Mark. And Paul says, heck no. And the way this is described in the book of Acts is like they were really angry. This is really angry 
with yeah. each other. 1539 says the disagreement became so sharp that they parted company. Barnabas took yeah. Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. Yeah. So they split ways, which is kind of a sad thing. Now, later on, we know that Paul makes at least peace with, with Mark. Like they have time together. Paul talks about how Mark's an encouragement. He asks for Mark. Uh, that's outside. That's in Paul's letters. So, but in the book of Acts, this is Paul and Barnabas. They split ways and that's it. Uh, must have been really hard. So they, so Paul, uh, John, Mark, and Barnabas kind of retraced the, the trail that uh, Barnabas and Paul had done on their first journey. Paul decides to go up through the mainland. He visits his home of Tarsus and then goes back to the places up in Galatia that in modern day Turkey where they had been before. And that's kind of picking us up to where we are. And they, what's incredible in those experiences is they share this good news that they're all fully a part of it. Paul is continuing to have this revelatory experience where the spirit is telling him where to go. And at least twice the spirit of Jesus, when Paul wants to go somewhere and share the good news says, Nope, don't go there. Yeah. One of them was a massive, uh, 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 it's not Asia, right? Oh Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was. So 16, six, they went through the region of uh, Fergia and Galatia, uh, having been forbidden by the Holy spirit to speak the word in Asia. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You're not going to speak the word here. Paul, the greatest apostle. (laughs) I mean, no. Yeah. So Paul's story is it. It's important for us to dig into Paul's story because like I'd mentioned, a, a majority of the epistles of the new Testament after, I mean, we're going to get into it before too long. What's crazy is we're in July and part of that's because the last four months have felt both simultaneously like 15 years and three weeks. And so we're already over halfway through the new Testament, um, according to the reading plan at least. And so we're going to get into Romans before too long because acts they're taking big old pieces of acts at a time. And so you're going to read a whole chapter sometimes in the book of Acts. And so try to slow down as you can, as you read those things. So Jimmy, before I push us out of here, uh, any other kind of final thoughts on where we are in the story of Acts? Uh, we live in a great time of technology. So if you've got the time, get on Google Maps. You don't have to pull up some fancy Bible Atlas app and look up these locations that they're going to, to have a sense of what it looks like in these places. Because being able to visually see the places in your head, I think helps think about where Paul was on these trips. Uh, I would also encourage people who really want to do some further study while we're doing it. This is a, if you have time to read Philippians, now that we're, we've read about Paul being in Philippi, go ahead and read Philippians. This is the people that he's writing a letter to that he just met. When you're, you know, we're, we're on right now about Thessalonians, Thessalonians, go read first and second Thessalonians. Uh, Corinth is a little bit harder because first and second Corinthians is, is pretty long. Uh, and obviously Galatians, Galatians is to the whole region of Galatia where Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey. If you have time to read those letters, it gives you Paul's relational, and you just see the love that Paul has for these people. He started these churches, and they're wrestling with real problems about how do we follow Jesus. And Paul's trying to address those issues and his own concerns for them. Like, this is not just a history story. This is a relational story. Uh, and if I, the times that I've done that, like I just kind of went through Philippians when they were in Philippians, it's just, it's just great. I don't know. If you have time, I would encourage you to do that. Yeah. And I, you don't have to, I think an encouragement I would just say to you is you don't have to do it like it's some sort of intense study. Yeah. Read it like you a know, letter. Think, yeah. Right. Exactly. Like read it like a letter. Cause that's what it was. Right. Exactly. Or is technically. So, um, 
man, uh, here's the deal. We just confessed that we flew through way too much of the book of Acts. Uh, and we're going to, we're going to try to slow down here and hopefully be back together next week. And uh, hopefully we can just choose smaller pieces of this. And so if you do have any questions as you come across stuff, uh, we always encourage you to ask us. You can either text or email Jimmy if you have our information. Anywhere we post this, you can follow up there. And we'd love to help answer some of your questions. But all we can do is encourage you to just keep reading, keep pushing in. And, and I hope that the book of Acts is really um, encouraging you who are maybe weary in this season to uh, continue to lean into the Holy Spirit and trust that God is still working uh, in, in yeah. some, some powerful ways, even though we may not see it or experience in the way we think we want to. But, God is not socially distanced during COVID-19, yeah, Jay. Uh, yeah. right. I, and I'm going to say this like to those that are listening. This would be, I would, I'd be encouraged just to, if, if somebody wanted to let us know, the thing that I'm re- reminded of consistently when I read Acts is, am I listening to the voice of the, am I expecting mm. and listening the spirit to guide me? Yeah. Am I able to say in my life and the spirit said to me, do this. And not only that, and I did it. So I went ahead and did it. Man, um, I, so, I don't want to, I'm not trying to make this, I'm not trying to take it. So for example, so here's, for me, as I think sometimes in my life, when I've, when I've thought about the presence of the Holy Spirit and the voice of the Holy Spirit, is I've always waited for some audible voice of, of God, right? Uh, which I do think happens. I think we, we very clear, like I know you at least have some experiences where things have aligned and felt like there was a pretty audible voice. Um, for me, as I, I think, and I may be way off base and I just kind of confess that, but I think this is my understanding of the work of God, uh, which I hope that I'm more certain in. Um, so I am one of the biggest kind of prayers for myself over this last couple of weeks, month has been um, echoing that from the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. And I keep asking God, help me, uh, help me hunger and thirst for more righteousness so that you will fill me. Um, and it comes from, there's a book, a guy named Duncan Campbell wrote about a revival that happened in the Hebrides. And, and one of the things he says, he says, uh, there's a blacksmith who says, Lord, I don't know about the rest of these people, but I'm thirsty. And you promised to, to fill those who are thirsty. And so you yeah. said it, don't make yourself a liar, fill us up, you know, yeah. kind of that thing. And so that's what I've been praying. And so what I, what I'm starting to trust and lean into, cause I have an inner critic that is uh, really good at stopping everything <laughs> that I think would work. Right. And so, for example, I go to Restore OKC the other day, which is this incredible organization down on Northeast 27th in uh, Oklahoma City. And I go in there and like pray prayerfully as I enter in that and, and praying and seeking God's guidance on, all right, how do we as a church get more involved in the city? How do we push ourselves outward? And I walk into this place and I'm, I'm just, I have this feeling as I'm moving around and they're starting to tell like, hey, this is what we're doing here. And this is how trusting that the Holy Spirit is in me as I pursue more of God. It didn't take me this like, well, let me go back and let me pray and let me think about. Yeah, right. I just thought I, and I felt it like the Holy Spirit was just saying, yep, you were, pr- you've literally been praying, been praying for this. You've been looking for this. You wanted an organization that's doing these things. that's easy to connect to. And I just felt the Holy Spirit said, you can just stop him and say, you're in, you know, yeah. like that's they what happened. Just, they don't like, have to sell you on it anymore. Yeah, right? Okay. We're in. What are we doing? What's already, next? Yeah. 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 And so it's like, so all I would encourage you, and I think there's wisdom in, in being uh, 
patient and discerning. But I think sometimes is our lack of faith in ourselves makes it to where when the Holy Spirit speaks in us, we blow it off as if it's just our own inner dialogue. Yeah, right. Like sometimes trust that if you're, if you're, if you're trying to pursue God and, and you're being faithful and you're praying and you're doing all those things, like maybe trust that the voice that's in your head or in your heart is actually the word of God speaking or the spirit of God speaking to you. And then just go forward. And worst case scenario is you, you went on your own accord and then you'll either be recorrected or God will take yeah. where you're headed and, and yeah, make yeah. it work. Right. So I, it's just Isn't one of those things kind of I'm tired of not trusting. Yes. Instead of asking these questions, why isn't God doing these miracles? The question for me is, am I, am I living that spirit-led life? Yeah. And uh, you know what? God will take care of whether miracles are supposed to take place. If I'm listening to his voice, I'll be where he wants me to be. Mm. And it's not like he doesn't want to speak to me. Like there's nothing in the scripture that would indicate God doesn't like speaking to people. God doesn't like guiding people. Uh, We, we pull back yeah, because it doesn't. And I'll be honest. Sometimes this, for me, I realized that my hesitancy, especially in the past several years to listen to the voice of God fully is because I'm really scared of what he's going to tell me to do. Uh, But I don't want to live that way. I don't want to look back wishing that I had not, I want to, I want to find something that I can give myself fully to. And that I already have, it's Jesus. Mm-hmm. And he's going to take me to these places that I can't imagine, which might just be to my neighbor next door, or it might be around the world in some you know place who knows, yeah. but uh, I don't want religion. I want this spirit led life that I yeah. see in the book of Acts. Well, and that's it. it you, you, when you said that, it reminds me of this passage that has just been resonating in my spirit. And, it's, and it really connects to where we're at because thinking about the fact that we're ending, uh, I think it was yesterday's readings, was uh, uh, Timothy enters the story. Uh, yeah. Timothy is half Jewish, half Greek, and young, young kid. But <laughs> Jimmy and I said another text. Like, so he's at least a, somewhat of an adult. Like he's, he's at least he's post young pu- man. puberty, yeah. young man. Yeah. Yeah. And Paul, because he's half Greek, he wasn't circumcised. And so right. Paul's like, well, he's going to be preaching to some Jews. And so maybe just to make that witness a little easier, I'm just going to go ahead and just circumcise you. Is that cool? Cool. Uh, it's so one sentence in the Greek and the English. <laughs> and, and the fact that we don't get stopped on that sentence, every one of us, every one of us who are men, should hit that sentence and go, what did Timothy just, what just happened? Yes. I, I just want to know how that conversation went down. Like, um, so Timothy, um, we're going to go preach the gospel in Greece and, um, and wherever the Lord leads us. And I know that I've been going around with this letter saying that people don't have to be circumcised. I, Cause the Jerusalem church told me to send that letter but you see your mom is Jewish and your dad is Greek. We, we've known this. Here's what I think. I think that you need to be circumcised. And Timothy says, but Paul, that letter says that I don't, I mean, I want to know how that went down. Like did Timothy go, Oh yeah. Okay. Circumcision. If that's what I got to do to be able to preach the gospel, I'm in. Or was it like, Hey, let's pray about this. Let's see what the spirit's really saying, Paul. Like, because I'm not sure know, if circumcision's weekend, really, okay. I mean, I've made it this far. Um, 
like, but what a, what a, what a little thing in terms of that one sentence part of Acts. Mm-hmm. But Paul, who in Galatians goes off on those who tell people to be circumcised, right? He says, you want to go the whole way and emasculate yeah, yourself, yeah, right? Those are, yeah, yeah, cut it all off. As long as you're, like, you might as well, he even says, I'm going to say it again, let them be cursed. He says it twice. Let those who tell you to be circumcised, curse them. I'll say it again. Let them be cursed, right? Like, Paul's really against the people who are pushing circumcision, but he also understands not things not getting in the way of the message. And there's yep. that tension, that so nuance. Good. If it's not just one way all the time, there's, I think that there was this moment, there probably was in prayer or revelation where the Holy Spirit saying, yeah, Timothy's going to be powerful, but he's going to have to be able to navigate both sides of this Jewish, not Jewish thing. He's going to have to have a voice to both crowds. And to do that, he has to be circumcised. And so, but Timothy takes on this incredible role with Paul. Um, and it's father, son, disciple, discipler. Like, you know, we use literally Paul and Timothy as that language today. There's this passage in Second Timothy, the second letter he wrote to Timothy, uh, and it's chapter one. And he says, Timothy, remember, remember the power you received when I lay hands on you. Because we have not yeah. been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind yeah. or self-discipline or, yeah. you know, yeah. it's just one of those things when I, when I step into that, I'm like, man, if we really trusted that, uh, that God has given us the spirit of power and not of fear and of love and of sound mind, then all of a sudden the sound mind part, particularly like I feel more confident when I step into places like God, you said to me that you gave me a spirit of sound mind. And so let me make these decisions leaning into the guidance of your spirit, you know? And for me, as I think in being the Timothy led by the spirit, as we've kind of talked about, is saying, hey, I feel that. And so going back to kind of what we talked about in the life of the spirit is what I would also say is my, my trust is that Timothy would say something to the effect of um, God's grace is sufficient. And I, I understand that and I see that and I'll do whatever yeah. it takes for the gospel to be proclaimed among, you know, Jew and Gentile. Incredible. Well, thank you all for joining us. Those of you that are checking us out weekly or bi-weekly, uh, we appreciate you tuning in. If you're reading with us, keep digging in. If you're behind, try to catch up. If you do have the, the time, jump into some of these letters as you start hearing these cities that you recognize from the letters of the New Testament. Jump over and check those out. It's going to give you some more context to Paul's story. And uh, we'll be back next week. I promise you we'll get in next week with some good content on what is ahead of us here in chapter 17 through probably 19 or so next week. So, Jimmy, thank you, man. Appreciate you. And uh, rate, review us, and share this wherever you listen. And we will see you next week. Thanks.